0: This is the Mahabharata Podcast, Episode 57, Amba, Part 2. Last time, we began the fascinating story of Amba Sikandin. Amba was the eldest of the three sisters whom Bhishma abducted from Kashi for his younger brother to marry. After the wedding date was set, she confessed that she was already betrothed to the king of Shalva. Bhishma and Satyavati nobly allowed her to go and sent an escort to take her to her betrothed in Shalva. Her short sojourn among the crews was already enough to mar her reputation, and thus made her unmarriageable for King Shalva. The girl lost her wits and compounded the problem by wandering away from her escort to an ashram. Once she had escaped the gaze of her protectors, the crews could never take her back. Now, she could neither move forward nor go back. A woman dishonored, she was lost to her caste. Fortunately, she had contacts among the Brahmins, and was able to enlist their greatest warrior, battle-axe Rama Jamadagnya. At first, Rama was unwilling to help her, since she was from the wrong caste, but he was persuaded because no one expected any kshatriya to dare resist his will. He had, after all, eradicated the entire race of kshatriyas 21 times over. But that was a long time ago, an aeon ago to be precise. At the turning of the Treta Yuga into the Devapar Yuga, Now, we're at the dying of the Dvapar age. Rama has grown old, and Bhishma is no ordinary Kshatriya. For the first time in a long time, we're reminded that Bhishma was the son of a goddess, had the soul of a Vasu, and had been trained by the gods. It seems even Bhishma had forgotten this, but his stubborn obstinacy kept him in the fight until Rama actually killed him. It's funny that there's no mention in this whole story of Bhishma's famous boon to choose the hour of his death. Instead, he is miraculously brought back to life by the spirits of his unborn brothers. In modern parlance, this is almost certainly a near-death experience. Even in modern times there are countless people who have died, left their bodies, met with spirits and returned to life, even at times having a miraculous recovery afterward. Bhishma's experience of dying awoke in him a memory of past lives and lost abilities. Now he knew he was watched over and protected by his spirit brothers. And that his fate was already written in the stars. Rama would not kill him, nor would he be defeated. That duty was reserved for someone as yet unborn, the son of Indra, reincarnation of Nara Prajapati, Arjun Kanteya. Rama also got his turn at dying, but we were not treated to his experiences. Instead, the sky went dark, there were earthquakes and hurricanes, and all the usual bad omens. The battle escalated to the point that the opponents were hurling the equivalent of nuclear missiles at each other. The size of these blasts grew until both sides were prepared to annihilate the universe with opposing Brahma missiles. Still, none of the divine onlookers were prepared to intercede in the duel, and it seems they were ready to witness the end of the world. Fortunately, Bhishma just then remembered the recipe for making a sleeper missile, which would put Rama to sleep and thus allow Bishma to win the day. While destroying the world could be allowed, defeating Rama was not. The busybody sage Narada had to step in and stop him from deploying the winning throw. Instead, Bhishma's spirit brothers appeared, and Rama's ancestors tried to reason with him. Eventually, a peace agreement was hammered out, and Rama conceded the field. Now, once again, Amba was on her own. Her champion had given up and could not help her. We left off last time with Amba at this turning point, trying to figure out what to do next. One thing was for sure. She said, I shall on no condition go back to Bhishma. Rather, I shall go to him when I myself can take him down in battle. The girl was inconsolably furious, and no one could dissuade her from tramping right off to the near sacred ford and performing gruesome austerities. Despite his obstinacy, Bhishma felt really bad about the whole situation. The girl would have nothing to do with him, so he sent trusted advisers to keep an eye on her and report back. The whole kingdom cheered Bhishma wherever he went in admiration of his feats against Rama, but his anguish over the lost princess grew worse daily. He went to Narada for advice, and the sage just said not to feel bad. The whole matter was driven by fate, thus it was out of his hands. As for the girl, she found a camp of ascetics along the banks of the Yamna and began a brutal regimen of fasting and yoga. For six months, she lived on nothing but air, standing perfectly still. Then, she spent a year standing in the water. The next year, she subsisted on a single withered leaf, standing on her tiptoes. She went on like this for 14 years, ignoring the entreaties of her family to let up a little. Amba only broke the monotony by traveling from one holy site to the next. Finally, perhaps even the gods got tired of all this drama, because Varuna appeared before her and asked, What do you want? I'll grant you a wish if you'll just cut this out. Amba, of course, expressed her sole desire to be the one who kills Bhishma. The god said, Okay, okay, so be it. Amba was a little surprised that he agreed so readily. She asked, You just said I could kill Bhishma in battle, but I'm still just a woman. How do you expect me to do this? Varuna got annoyed. He said, Did I promise you or not? In your next life, you'll be a warrior. You shall not forget your mission in your new body, and you will slay Bhishma in battle. That was all she needed to hear. At once, she began gathering wood. As soon as she had assembled a cremation-sized pile of wood, she lit it on fire, and without the slightest hesitation, she leapt into the flames, shouting as she died, for Bhishma's death. Meanwhile, events continued to develop at Hastinapur and elsewhere. The Pandavas and Karvas were born, Drona was hired to train them and soon they were ready to graduate. It was a custom that upon graduation, a student offers a gift to his guru. The graduation present that Drona demanded was nothing less than the neighboring kingdom of Panchala. It appears that Drupad's inherited lands covered both banks of the river Ganges, to the southeast of Hastinapur. From earlier tales, we learn that before becoming king, Drupad and Drona had been friends. When Drupad was crowned king of Panchala, he snubbed Drona in some way, and Drona left Panchala looking for a new patron. Thus, when Drona was hired to teach the younger generation of Kurus, he also bore a deep grudge against Drupad. When the boys offered a gift to their guru, what he asked for was the conquest of Panchala. Famously, the Karva brothers made the first attempt on the kingdom, but were beaten back, leaving it up to the Pandavas to rush in and win the day. Drupad was taken prisoner and the kingdom was delivered up to Drona. Drona had done all this mostly to soothe his vanity. Plus, it was not looked upon kindly to depose kings in ancient India. In fact, the only examples of regicide we have so far are Kamsa, Sishupal of Chedi, and Jarasandha Magadha. And none of those cases was the throne actually subsumed. Rather, in each event, the king was replaced by the next in line to the throne. It's also interesting that it was Krishna who was behind each of these deaths. To prove his point and to make it sting, Drona returned the southern half of Panchala back to Drupad and kept the northern lands that bordered Hastinapur. It isn't clear what the status of these lands became. I get the impression that Drona made his son Ashvataman the effective king of these lands, but we are never told who really controlled northern Panchala. As for Drupad, he had to humbly take what he was given and pretend to be grateful for it. But once the affair was over, he went looking for revenge. His number one problem at that point was that he and his queen were childless. You might recall from the early episodes that Drupad went on a mission to get a supernatural son who was designed to defeat Drona and bring down the Kurus. The result of that mission was the birth, out of a sacrificial fire, of Draupadi and her brother Dristudyumna. Well, there seems to be more to this story. Because as Bhishma tells it this time, Drupad first had a child in a more natural manner named Sikandini. Sikandini is not mentioned in the story of Dristad-Yumna and Draupadi, and Dristad-Yumna and Draupadi are not mentioned in the story of Sikandin. But if we put the two stories together, Sikandin must have been born first. The story goes like this. Following his defeat, Drupad committed himself to powerful austerities. He managed to summon Shiva for help, and the god promised him a man-child who was a woman. This made no sense at all to Drupad, and he argued with the god. Shiva dismissed him, saying, What is to be will be. You shall have a daughter who shall become a man. This is her destiny. Now go away. Drupad hurried home and told his wife to get ready. The queen purified herself and became pregnant, giving birth to a girl named Sikandini. Remembering the god's promise, Drupad declared her to be his son and had her treated as a boy in all ways. The whole world was led to believe he'd had a son, except, of course, for Bhishma, who had inside knowledge. Drupad stuck to his cover story, even having the girl trained as a warrior by Drona. But the promised change never occurred. Soon the people were clamoring for a royal wedding. The queen remained confident that the gods' prediction would come true soon enough, so she recommended that they go forward with the wedding. Surely the gods would set things right in due time. So, putting his faith in Shiva, Drupad entered the marriage market, eventually finding the daughter of Hiranyavarman of Dasharna as a bride for his son. Throughout the engagement and marriage, the deception was maintained, but Sikandini never changed. She behaved like a man in public, but the day for consummating the marriage soon arrived. The princess of Desharna could no longer be deceived, and she sent word back to her father that she'd been yoked to a girl for a husband. Hiranyuvarmin blew his top when he discovered he'd been cheated, and he called up his army and his allies to prepare for an invasion the Dashanaka king promised to depose Drupad and kill him along with his monstrous offspring. The poor king of Panchala had been called out on his deception. So, to gain some sympathy among his people, he blamed his wife. He feigned ignorance and before the court asked his wife to explain about her son. The good queen played along and pretended that the king had also been in the dark. She said, My lord, seeing that you are desperate for sons and that my co-wives might beat me to it, I had it announced that Sikandin was a boy. The great god has promised that this would soon enough come true, so the charade was maintained. The people of Panchala were shocked to learn of the deception and the impending disaster. They were divided on whether they should even support their king after so many lies and defeats. Drupad hardly felt like asking for their support. Feeling he deserved his fate, he made half-hearted attempts to improve the kingdom's defenses and to build up his reluctant army. Soon enough, messages arrived from the Dasharnas that they were on the march. Instead of calling up his army, King Drupad just stayed in his palace, refusing to give orders. Inexorably, his administration went to pieces. Many courtiers stayed home, preparing to flee, while others secretly offered assistance to the enemy. The court ceased to function, and the capital looked like a ghost town. In the chaos, Sikandi slipped out and fled to the forest. Blaming herself for all that had happened, she hoped that by killing herself she might avert this disaster. Being at heart a gentle soul, Sikandin resolved to kill herself by starvation. She settled down under a tree and resolved to die there. It just so happened that this very patch of woods was part of the domain of a yaksha called Stunakarna. When he discovered this tranny prince starving in his own backyard, he felt affection and sympathy for this vulnerable child. Being the kind of mythical creature that could grant wishes, he asked Sikandi what she might wish for. The prince replied that she only wanted to die, because there was nothing anyone could do to help. The yaksha was insistent, however, and finally the girl broke down and told him her sad story. Stuna replied, Well, you are correct in that I cannot permanently solve your problem, but what I can do is loan you my cock for a little while, until your trouble is blown over. But then you must promise to give it back. Sikandi had learned long ago to take things one step at a time, so she went for this deal. Stunakarna, whose name translates roughly as cuts off dick, did just that. They traded sex organs, and voila, Sikandin was a he. Sikandin happily returned to Panchala and broke the news to his father that she was now a boy. The Dasharnaka army was right at their doorstep at this point, so the king hurriedly sent off a courier to tell them that there had been a mistake. The rumors were all false, and the prince really was a man. King Hiranyavarman remained suspicious. So to confirm, he sent a gaggle of trusted concubines to check out his so-called son-in-law. These yakshas, genial leprechauns or not, must be fairly well endowed, because the ladies were quite happy with what they saw. They reported this back to their master, and he was satisfied that it all had been one big misunderstanding. They all had a big laugh, feasted each other, exchanged gifts, and the erstwhile punitive expedition packed up and returned home. With all the entertainments coming to a close, Sikandin began thinking of his promise to return his John Thomas. But circumstances had changed out in the forest. It just so happened that shortly after the sex exchange had taken place, the god of wealth and king of the Yakshas, Kubera, was on a tour of his subject's domains. He came across Dunakarna's dwelling But no one came out to greet him. Every yaksha owed his lord courtesy and hospitality, but Stuna rudely refused to come out. Kubera grew annoyed at this perceived insolence and threatened to curse his subject. Kubera's courtiers had heard the rumors and they tried to explain. They said, Sire, Stuna was helping out King Drupad's daughter and lent her his dong. Lacking this valuable appendage, he she remains indoors. She feels it is not appropriate to peer before you in her current condition. I guess Kuber is one of those hotheads, because he refused to back down. He said, Bring Stuna before me immediately, so I can punish her. I shall make her a woman for the rest of eternity. Stuna came rushing to the gods' presence and begged for mercy. The courtiers also thought this was a bit extreme, so they interceded for him, begging that a time limit be set on the curse. Kubera consented, ruling that Stuna shall remain female so long as the prince of Panchala still lived. On Sikandi's death, Stuna would regain her manhood. Not long after, Sikandi returned to the forest to fulfill his promise. Stuna was gratified that the prince had returned, but of course the exchange was not made. Stuna explained what had occurred and said, so there you go, enjoy yourself, live it up while you can. I'm sure all of this was fated to happen just like it did, so there's no point in resisting it. Sikandin was delighted at the news. He returned home, where his father showered gifts on him, while he in turn gave gifts to Brahmins in thanksgiving. The king sent both of his sons, Sikandin and dristad to study warfare under Drona at Hastinapur. Bhishma finished his story, saying that the prince had since become an accomplished warrior, and that he had no intention to defend himself from Sikandin's attack. He said, Thus it was that the eldest daughter of the Kashis was born in Drupad's lineage and became a great warrior. When he encounters me on the field, I shall not even look at him, let alone defend myself, because I have sworn before the world that I shall not fight a woman, a former woman, someone with the name of a woman, or someone who seems to be a woman. If I were to kill a woman, it would be to kill myself. Therefore, I shall not fight him, even if he attacks me. Duryodhana thought about it a while and concluded that this was a worthy thing for his uncle to do. As if seeking reassurance, Duryodhana had a question. He asked, Grandpa, can you tell me again, how long would it take you to kill all our enemies? Bhishma replied, About a month, my son. He then asked Drona the same question. The Brahmin laughed and said, I'm old and feeble, but with my magic arrows, I reckon about a month too. Karna then interrupted, Oh yeah? Well, I could do it in five days. Bhishma scoffed. Talk is cheap. Wait till you meet Arjuna and Krishna on the battlefield and then tell us what you think. The following morning, the armies on both sides were mobilized. Each of the generals led his army forward onto the field of battle. They all had bathed and purified themselves, wore garlands and white robes, held swords and banners, and had made offerings to the fire. Vinda and Anuvinda of Avanti, the Kikayas and Balikas all marched out, led by Bharadvaja. Ashvataman, Shantanava, Jaidrata of Sindhu, the southerners, westerners, and the mountain warriors, the Gandhara Prince Shakuni, all the easterners and northerners, Shakas, Yavanas, Shibis, Vasatis, with their own troops surrounding their great warriors. All these warriors marched out in the second army. Krittavarman with his force, the mighty Trigartas and King Duryodhana, surrounded by his brothers, and Shala, Burishravas, Shalia, Burbala of Kushala, marched in the rear, led by Dharashtra. They marched, these warriors about to give battle, over even roads, and in full armor, they took up positions in the western part of the field of the Kurus. Duryodhana had a camp set up there that was decorated like Hastinapur. Experienced men who lived in the city saw no difference between the city and the camp. The Karavya king had similar fortresses built for other kings as well, by the hundreds and thousands. The army bivouacs and hundreds of groupings stretched a distance of five leagues into the circular battle arena. The rulers of earth, according to their vigor and strength, entered their thousands of opulent camps quickly. King Duryodhana portioned out superb foods to the great-spirited princes and their troops as well as non-combatants elephants, horses, men, artisans, other camp followers, bards, songsters, and minstrels, merchants, courtesans, harlots, and spectators. The king looked after all of them in a proper fashion. Likewise, King Yudhishthira Kantea, son of Dharma, urged on his heroes, led by Drishtadyumna. He gave orders to the brave leaders of the Chadis, Kashis, Kurushas, the enemy-killing Drishtaketu, to Virata, Drupada, Yudan. Sekandin and the two archers of Panchala, Yudabanyu and Utamaljas. The champions, wearing colorful armor and earrings of pure gold, blazed like fires on sacrificial hearths sprinkled with butter. Those archers shone like luminous planets. The king paid honor to the army, division by division, and ordered the troops to the march. Pandu's son first sent off Abhimanyu, Barhanta, and all the Draupadeyas, who were led by Dristad Yumna. In the second formation, Yudhishthira sent Bhima, Yudan, and Dhananjaya Pandava. The noise of the happy warriors hoisting on harnesses, milling about, running around, seemed to touch heaven. The king himself, with Virata, Drupada, and other princes, marched in the rear. This army, led by Dristadyumna, appeared as the Ganges in spate, stagnating and then flowing. Then, the sagacious king again regrouped his ranks in order to fool the torrential wits of the sons of Dhritarashtra. The Pandava ordered the Draupadea archers, Abhimanyu, Nakula, Sahadev, and all the Prabhadrakas, 10,000 horses, 2,000 elephants, 10,000 foot, and 5,000 chariots, and the invincible Bhimasena to the vanguard. In the center, he placed Virata, Jayatsena of Magadha, the two Panchala warriors, Yudhamanyu and Uttamajas. Both heroic and great spirited wielders of clubs and bows, while Vasudev and Arjun also followed in the center. There were berserk men there, clutching their weapons, 20,000 standards commanded by champions. There were 5,000 elephants, all the chariot trains, footmen, and commanders carrying bows and swords and clubs by the thousands in front, by the thousands in back. The other kings were largely stationed in this sea of troops where Yudhishthira himself was, with thousands of elephants tens of thousands of horses, thousands of chariots and foot soldiers, relying on which he marched to attack Suyudana Dharastra. Behind followed hundreds of thousands and myriads of men, marching and shouting in thousands of formations. And in their thousands and tens of thousands, the happy warriors sounded their thousands of drums and their tens of thousands of conches. This ends the Udyoga Parva, the Book of the Effort. It also brings to an end my reliance on the Buiten translation. I still have Ganguli and I've got a translation of the battle books on its way from the Clay Sanskrit Library. Thanks to Kalpash who suggested it on my blog. Next time, we'll get started on the Bhishma Parvan, the first of the battle books. But don't expect the war to start that quickly. It may be the morning of the big day, but we've still got the Bhagavad Gita, the Song of the Lord, to cover. Thanks for listening.